We started a series of messages that we're going to continue right on up until Easter. But hey, before we get into that, I promise you spring is on the way. Uh, yeah, this is the craziest thing, isn't it? Uh, getting snow and everything yesterday. But spring is on the way. And the good thing about spring, there's going to be opportunities to get out and to do things. And there's a couple of family uh, events that are coming up. And I want you to make sure you, 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 you put them priority, priority one on your calendar. Uh, in, in the month of March, there's going to be a daughter, uh, a mother-daughter retreat. In the month of April, there's going to be a father-son survival excursion, okay? I know that's going to be involved water and rivers and camping and things like that. There's going to, that's not, that's the guys one. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen with the girls one. All right. So the mother daughter be thinking about that. Also, maybe, you know, someone, maybe you don't have a daughter, you don't have a son, but you want a big brother, big sister, somebody, this is a great time to just be that in someone's life that is maybe missing that or, or that, that, that mother or father's not around right now. So uh, anyway, be looking at those, put those on your calendars, but we're going to be talking about this study that we kicked off last week. Uh, about re-Jesus. And, and we're not trying to reinvent Jesus. Uh, we're not going to try to remake him in our image. Uh, in fact, we're going to try to debunk maybe a lot of the, the cultural, uh, traditional uh, ways that we have, have collected through the years to make Jesus who he really isn't. But we have been duped or we have been culturally swayed into believing that this is the Jesus out there. And we want to detox some, okay? Kind of a detoxification, if you will, and rediscover. That's a part of the re, the rediscovering who Jesus is. Not in our own image again, but who he really is historically, who he really is scripturally, who he really is supposed to be in our life. He's not just a... Jesus meek and mild in a manger, an event that happened back 2,000 years ago. But he's actually somebody who's supposed to be influencing and impacting our life. And I want us to rediscover that. And that's what we're just going to spend the next uh, weeks just kind of plowing through. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I knew what Jesus looked like. As a kid, I had no doubt if you had asked me what Jesus looked like, I would have said he's somewhere about five, eleven, six foot. He's tall, slender. He's got long, flowing brunette hair with locks in that hair. He's got a square jaw with a, with a neatly trimmed beard. He's kind of pale, white, complected, if you will. Again, I grew up in the white Jesus era, okay? So, you know, you have this kind of image of this Jesus. I grew up in the days of stained glass and felt board Jesus, okay? And that's the Jesus I grew up with. And literally, this is, is the picture, the stained glass window in my home church that I grew up in. Now, here's the history that my 84-year-old and my 94-year-old grandmother, she was 94 before she passed about five or six years ago, remembers this Jesus being in the first church that she went to, and she remembers this Jesus. And when that church, when they moved to a new location, they brought Jesus with them. That's always a good thing, uh, churches to bring Jesus with them. And, and, and they put him right in the center. And I can remember going, as a, I mean, just by five years old, going into big church and right in the middle between two entryway doors into the worship center, uh, we call it sanctuary at that time, were into the sanctuary, there was this big picture, this big stained glass of Jesus. And so I knew what Jesus looked like. This 
was Jesus. And hey, when the church got bigger and they built up another worship center, they relocated Jesus again. And you know what? They just moved across town and they've relocated Jesus again. So I know what Jesus looks like. That's Jesus. And if you don't argue with me, you're gonna have to argue with my church when I grew up in, because that's what I knew until I got a little older. I began to look at things a little differently and a little fuller and a little more critically, not in a critically in a bad way, but trying to think critically. Is that really what, was Jesus a white guy with long hair and pretty robe and all clean cut? And I began to really kind of deconstruct, if you will, detoxify. That's not a word, I know it, but it, it, we're going to make it a word today. Uh, detox from the, the whole Jesus white guy era, okay? And, uh, and I began to look out there, and I've been doing a little art history study uh, this past week, okay? So if you want to know what I've been doing with my time, I've been looking up the various representations of Jesus. In fact, there is more, there, there's no more... Uh, Jesus has painted more in more portraits than any other single individual on the planet. And you can do an art history study just on the paintings of Jesus. Now, not all of these are paintings, but there's a few renditions of Jesus that are out there. I want to give them their own names, okay? So here's the funny Jesus. This is the cool Jesus, okay? And he's out there, and you can buy a little figurine, even a bobblehead, uh, if you want, of this kind of Jesus. And maybe that's the Jesus you like. And that's the problem is, is that we kind of have our Jesus kind of picked out. That's not the Jesus you, you think that's sacrilege, okay? Then you can go with the homeboy Jesus, because there's a homeboy Jesus t-shirt out out there that even the movie stars like. And they like Homeboy Jesus because Homeboy Jesus is not going to get you in trouble. Homeboy Jesus is going to be your friend. He's going he's gonna to hang with you. He's not going to ask too much of you. He's just going to be one of those. Even as you go out and you do your thing, you know, that's, that's okay because he's just your homeboy anyway. Uh, and so that maybe that's your Jesus. Or then there's this one I came across. It's kind of, I call him Scary Jesus. Now, again, these are, these are my versions, my, my titles. You can title them yourself. And I, it's kind of dark and dingy, kind of bags into the eyes. Jesus, I'm kind of scared of this Jesus, okay? That's not the Jesus that I kind of imagine when I close my eyes to sleep. I want to see that image in my... But, you know, this, this whole idea of seeing Jesus, I mean, he's so popular, people even see him in toast and waffles and pancakes, and they actually sell them on eBay. Kid you not. You can buy... Anyway, that's another digression. Um, but here's, here's, one of, here's one of the ones I came across. I just like this one a lot. In fact, some of you girls may like it. He's the handsome Jesus. Okay, he's, he's got kind of... Tie, he's got some hairians that have been kind of uh, dyed maybe, uh, bleached blonde a little bit. It's flowing. He's got blue eye Jesus. You know, who wouldn't fall in love with that Jesus? You know, that's a nice picture of Jesus. Now, you think I'm sacrilege here, but I'm kind of making fun of, but at the same time, all of this activity has been about trying to picture what Jesus looks like, all right? And again, what our culture has done is we have gone around and made Jesus kind of in our own image, or kind of how we want him to look and how we want him. But there is only one verse in Scripture that I can find, and you, 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 you point me to another one if I'm missing it, but there's only one verse in Scripture that I can find that points to maybe how Jesus might have looked. Okay, so if you're an artist, get out your little charcoal pen and start writing it down. I'm going to give you the description of him. Isaiah 53, verse 2. This is 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, but this is a prophecy from Isaiah, and he said this, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty 
that you would want to look at him. No appearance that he, that we should even desire him. He would have not been voted the best looking guy in the class at Nazareth High School. He would have not been selected to be the homecoming king, okay, at that school. There is no majesty about him, nothing impressive about him. There was nothing that said, hey, I've got to do a double look on Jesus here, okay? There was nothing that, that you should desire to even look at him. He was a plain Jane Jesus, okay? There was nothing externally to draw you in and to lure you in to look at Jesus, which I think is a lot of what our renditions of Jesus have become. And so it's interesting as you dive on in again into art history and you dive on into this whole pursuit of trying to figure out what Jesus might have looked like. The best I could find was what the BBC did back in the British Broadcasting System uh, Company uh, had, had, did back in 2001 when they did a documentary on the life of Jesus. And what they did was, I think, the most scientific way or form about going about trying to figure out what Jesus might have looked like. Archaeologists, and here's the process they went through, archaeologists have unearthed a first century, through carbon dating, a first century skull of a man. And then what they did is they took forensic science and exactly what we would do today in trying to recreate what maybe somebody might have looked like in that time, jawbone structures, all that kind of stuff, forehead, they tried to recreate this first century Palestinian skull. They put hair around his beard because that was very common in that day. They even gave him a Greek style haircut. In a few moments, you'll see the haircut. And, and this is what, after really laboring over it and even trying to, trying to match skin tone colors with what maybe an outdoor blue collar home builder carpenter boy might have grown up to look like, what he might have looked like. It's the most scientific rendering I think you can find of Jesus. Has anybody ever seen this? All right. Are you ready to look what Jesus probably closely looked like? Does anybody want to see it? Okay, good. Thank you. All right, here it is. Picture of Jesus. There it is. Pretty unimpressive. You can see the bowl-shaped Greek haircut. You can see this kind of um, not so much square jaw, but maybe less square jaw. You can see the dark skin tone. It's as best I can figure out, this may be the, the best rendering of what Jesus might have looked like. But listen, I want us today to even move past this whole idea of looking at what he looked like. May it might not look like on, on the physical appearance side. And I want us to, again, not reinvent Jesus, not revamp Jesus, not refashion Jesus, but I want us to revisit the real Jesus and understand who he was and, and, and what he wanted to do. Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch in their book, Read Jesus, they say this, to read Jesus, the church, we need to take a Christians along on a journey of the rediscovery, a pilgrimage toward Jesus to see as Jesus saw. And so my, my challenge just today is not so much to try to figure out what Jesus looked like, but to who Jesus really was and how he was and to see life as Jesus saw life, as Hirsch and Frost say. I, want, I, I think the, the best way to take on the image of God in flesh, Jesus incarnate, is not so much to try to look at him physically, but to look at him from a deep soul kind of way. 
from an attitude, from a mindset. What was the mind of Christ like? What was the attitude of Christ like? What was the, what was the soul of Christ like? Because that's what I want to reimagine. And that's what I want to redeem. And I want God to redeem that in me. Because I want to be as much like Jesus as possible. Not the Palestinian first century look like Jesus, but the more of the soul, mind, and attitude like Jesus. And so we talked about last week reclaiming Jesus. I want to talk about the redeeming Jesus this week. When I talk about redeeming, I want to talk about like redeeming your 50-cent coupon for toilet paper at Walmart. That's a redeeming of a coupon. I'm talking about redeeming that sense that you think about that estate sale when somebody passes away and they've got all this house full of clutter or things or memorabilia that mean nothing to anybody else but the person who's passed away. And one man's junk's another man's treasure. And so they come into the house and they buy it for pennies on the dollar. And they buy things that are stuck back in closets that haven't been seen the daylight in years and decades. And they then take it to their shop and they clean it up and they refresh it and they understand it. And then they sell it for four to 500 times what they paid for it. That's the kind of redemption that we speak of today. When God looks into our broken lives that we have been hiding in a closet, that have been shattered, that we look at and we say it's useless and broken, that other people may look at and say, boy, that looks like a pretty sorry life in existence. And But yet God, when God enters in, when Jesus enters into the equation All of a sudden, redemption can happen. Restoration can happen. Rediscovery of a a potential. A reigniting of an image of God that you've lost, that you don't have, that has been restored inside of you. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the work of Jesus in us. And that's what the redemption is that we want to see in each and every person. And we want to celebrate. How does Jesus redeem my life? Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at... Probably, in fact, I'm going to stick my neck out and say it is the most densely theological packaged four or five verses in all of the New Testament. Many people believe it's the very first hymn that was ever sung, chanted, declared over Jesus in his life, that it was a first century. Most scholars all believe that it was a first century hymn. But I want you to know the, see the density and the theology that is tied up in this one little phrase in the book of Philippians chapter 2. In this one short stroke of the pen... You see the, pre, the pre-incarnation, you see the incarnation, you see the crucifixion, and you see the exaltation of Christ. From, from Philippians chapter 2 to the verse 5 all the way to the, the verse 11, that is the hymn section, if you will, or actually verse 6 to verse 11. That's the hymn section, and we're not even going to cover it all today. We're only going to cover a short section of it. But here's what the challenge is. It's not just this Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And that today what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a bunch of information. No. See, the story of Jesus isn't just about information. It's about transformation. It's about what what Jesus will do in your life when Jesus is fully alive in your life. It's what Jesus came and entered into time and space and why he came to enter into time and space and what he wants to do in your life and how it can revolutionize and redeem your life whenever he's fully alive inside of you. 
It's what he calls us to do in verse 5. I just want to read the very first verse because it's kind of the, the prelude to the whole heart and soul of this hymn, this ancient hymn. And this is what it says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, each one of those phrases is powerful. Have this mind, have this attitude, have this thought, have this soul, have this perspective. See life as Jesus saw. Don't get caught up in what the image of Christ was like. Get caught up in the image of Christ being in you. Have this mind in yourselves. I like the next phrase, though. It's a powerful phrase. Don't get just hanging on the the first phrase. The powerful phrase is actually in the next phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You're not going to have the mind of Christ if you come to church every Sunday, you go catechism classes and you, you, you memorize all the Bible school and you never miss a, a day of vacation Bible school and then all of a sudden you're going to evolve into having the mind of Christ. The beauty of entering into a relationship with Christ is that you are imputed the mind of Christ. You are given the mind of Christ. Now, the reality is, is we as followers of Christ have got to ask ourselves, have I actualized, have I realized, have I engaged, have I awakened the mind of Christ that is in me? Or am I still listening to my old mind, my old soul, my old way of thinking and feeling and emoting? That's the beauty and the promise that we need to walk off of. And listen, it's not just one phrase that he does, does this one-off kind of statement. It's like he really, he kind of just said it one time. This is something that Paul really believed. He even said to the church at Corinth is that we have the mind of Christ. Present tense right now, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have been born again, as we talked about last week, you have the mind of Christ. You can bear the image of Christ. You can have and feel like Christ felt. In fact, you should. You should. And that's what you should strive for in your life. In fact, if you look at, it, at this passage of Scripture in bookends, verse 5 says, you know, let, the, let this mind be in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then skip down to verse 12. And you see that this statement is made. He says, therefore, tying back up to the previous words, therefore, my beloved, because of everything that was said before, as you have always obeyed now, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So don't be a hypocrite and just obey whenever I'm around, but do what God tells you to do all the time. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The idea here is not that you're going to work for your salvation, but you're going to allow the salvation that has been imputed to you, the mind of Christ has been imputed to you, you're going to allow that to come out of you. You're going to allow that representation of God inside of you to become fully alive, fully aware, fully influencing every part of who you are. It will change you. If Jesus hasn't changed you, you need to go revisit Jesus again. He hasn't altered your attitude. You need to go revisit Jesus again. He hasn't changed the way you live your life. You need to revisit Jesus again. Because the Jesus that you may be following is the homeboy Jesus or the scary Jesus. And some people do follow the scary Jesus. They're almost afraid of God. Let's look at Jesus as he is in Scripture. 
And then here's what happens inside of us whenever this, and we're going to see a parallel track running here in this passage where we're going to get to know Jesus a little bit better, but also always be remembering that he has called us to be like him. So when we're learning about Jesus, we're learning also how we should function. There are three realities, three new realities that we must live in when we're allowing the mind of Christ that's been imputed to us to live and shape us. Number one, people matter more than pleasures or positions in life. We live so much of our lives for position, for status, for accolades, for titles, and for pleasures. Living for the weekend. When's our next vacation? When's the next holiday? When's the next government holiday? When's our, you know, we live for pleasures. We live for positions. And really what Jesus models for us is, no, we live for people. And we see that so well whenever you look at the life of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, verse 6. That's the very first part of the hymn. That he being in the form of God, Jesus, I don't know, this may be a wake up for some of you. Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. Jesus didn't just never exist before and then he started existing, meek and mild in a manger. He's always existed. He existed before time. He's existed from all eternity. Time before time existed, Jesus existed. Listen, this reality, this, this, this beyond our world, beyond our reality, this God of the universe and outer space and everything that has existed, listen, that existed before anything existed. They existed before anything existed, and Jesus is a part of the they. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And every time it says the word, uh, it says the word, Word. In John, it's referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He was in the beginning. He, he's always been. And He was with God, equal to God. And that's what He's saying there. And He also was God. So we, we got to realize this is who we're talking about. So when we're talking about Jesus coming to earth and he emptied himself, he is talking, we're talking about him leaving the beauties, the pleasures, the position, the fame, the fortune. I can't describe heaven. I cannot describe heaven. Isaiah says that heaven is so wonderful and so amazing that we will not even remember this earth or the things that come that happened here. That's how amazing heaven is. So, I mean, Jesus left all of that. He emptied himself. He did not hold on to those things so that he might come and dwell among us. He was in the form of God. His essence was God, but he emptied himself. And not only did he move to earth in time and space where pain and suffering and injustice and, and lack of peace and racism and, and all, the, all the, the dysfunction of our society exists, not only that, he moved to the wrong side of the tracks. He moved to Nazareth. If you read those scriptures, you'll know that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's literally a proverb that they would say in that day. But Jesus, here's the beauty. And don't miss this. Life principle. Jesus came to us because we couldn't go to him. Jesus came to us because we couldn't go to him. 
we were fallen and broken and unable to get to God. And so what did God do? But he sent his son to us. That is one of the most incredible stories that we cannot back away from, that should shape us, that we should realize that people matter more than pleasures or anything else in this world or positions or anything else in this world or anything that we could accumulate. And it's everything that Jesus did when he came, his healing, his ministry, his teaching, his dying on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. It was everything. It conquers everything. John Calvin said it like this, on the cross, destruction was destroyed, torment, tormented, damnation, damned, death, dead, mortality made immortal because of what Jesus did on the cross. How does that affect us? Well, it should affect us in every way to where we will have the same level of compassion and passion and commitment to people. The mind of Christ means I move toward a passionate compassion. Why does Jesus come to this earth? He came to this earth because he was passionate and compassionate for us. When he wept over Jerusalem, what did he say? I weep over them because they're like a sheep without a shepherd. He's wept over Northwest Arkansas, I have to believe, because you know people, I know people, we're related to people. And people that we haven't even wept over, he has wept over. But when we have the mind of Christ, all of a sudden we realize that every person matters more than pleasures or, 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 or positions or titles or accolades or anything else. And we start living to make sure that everybody, everybody, every person has a chance to hear about Christ. I love what uh, Craig Rochelle in Oklahoma Life Church TV says about their church. He says, we will do anything short of sin to bring people to faith in Christ. We'll do anything. I mean, you, you hear in there, there's a passionate compassion to make sure that every person has a chance to know Christ. What will we do? What will we do? Do you share the mind of Christ? Number two, servanthood becomes my manner for living. It just becomes your way of life. Now, I want you to notice this. He said, in the form of a servant, he taking on the form of of a servant and being born in the likeness of a man and being found in human form. So he comes and he puts himself in the flesh where he's going to get tired, where he's going to feel pain, where he's going to have emotions, where he's going to experience hunger, where he's going to experience rejection, where he's going to experience all these things. And he does it in the spirit and in the attitude of a servant. Giving of himself. I want you to see this in context of the whole passage. Look at verse 6 and following. Because really what you're seeing here is you're seeing missional living. This is an example of missional living. But let's look at this whole passage here. Who though he was in the form, morphe, of God. Morphe means the, the, the sheer essence of God. He, he, was the, he was in its very form through and through. He was God. Did not count equality with God. Now, he, he was equal to God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the morphe of a servant. So he was fully God in his essence, in his core, and everything that he was. But he becomes fully a servant in flesh. As much as he was God, he was a servant So here's the beauty of it. When we take on service, we are taking on an attribute, a quality of God that we uh, it becomes a part of us just as it was a part of God. Now let's keep reading. 
born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Schema. He uses the word form and translated, but it's the word schema, which means it has the appearance of. So here, let me break it down as quickly as I can, as fast as I can. Jesus was fully God who became fully a servant with skin on. Skin on, flesh on. He was as much man as he was God and as much God as he was man all at the same time. So when Jesus came to this earth, his essence didn't become, I become, I'm a king and I'm a God of the universe, but I'm also going to come to this earth and I'm going to be the king and the God of the universe, uh, of this earth. No, I'm going to come to this earth and I'm going to put myself as a servant. That's who I am. That's who I am. That becomes his identity. And that's why he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see it throughout his life. He came to serve. He served the fishermen. He served the prostitutes. He served the children. He served the tax collectors. He served the sick. He served the sorrowful. He served. And that was his life. That's who he was. You go to John chapter 5, verse 30, and you'll find that everything he did, he did not do it on his own initiative. He did what the Father told him to do. Even when he was going to the cross, he did not want to go to the cross. He did not want to feel the pains, the blows, the suffering of the cross. It says in Luke 22, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He totally lived his life in the posture of servanthood. That's why when we say around at Grace Point Church, we say, hey, we exist as Grace Point Church to activate and arm our members for ministry and mission. This is not just a cute, trite statement. This is not a pity statement. This is literally, we are trying to encourage and establish our membership in such a way that they will carry with them the nature of God, that they will be alive and alert, activated and armed, equipped, ready to go out and to do what? To do ministry and to do mission for God. That's why we exist. And that's why when we talk around here about West Africa and what we've been doing for the past 11 years in West Africa, it's just a part of what we've been doing. We've been there and investing teams, teams, over 150 people have gone to West Africa and we've served. And now it's a beautiful thing. We have Aubrey Barton, who's there right now from our church. We're helping to support her each and every week. When you give, you're supporting Aubrey as she goes. But not only that is we are now able after being there for 11 years to begin to back out, model assist, watch and leave. We're at the watch level. And the great thing is I was just over there in January and the national believers have identified seven villages that they feel like God is calling them to go. Model assist, watch and leave. And now we're watching them go. Now we're watching them become servants in their own people. Mosaic is a ministry of our church. It's one where we want to bless and, and help every orphan, every foster child in Northwest Arkansas whether it's foster family adoption or community groups adopting a foster family or it's foster parents night out or it's Hope NWA where we went and we blessed five or six or seven families, giving them spaces that they can meet in as foster families and adoptive families. And let me tell you about something else that's happening in May. We have a, we have a, a young mother with three children in our church 
And Habitat for Humanity has identified and vetted and, and we're going to help build a home for this single mother of three children. And it's going to be beautiful. That we're, it's not just us, it's other churches, it's other, it's other believers, it's other non-believers, it's, it's contractors in our church, it's people. And we're going to have one full week where we're going to be able to go in and help in this process of building a home from the ground up. And it's going to be amazing to be able to be a part of that to somebody who's a part of our fellowship. So we do things globally, we do things locally. You think, okay, Michael, you just mentioned some things that I can't do. I can't build anything. Raise your hand if you're not a non-builder. Raise your hand. I'm in that group. Okay. Non-builders, can you build a turkey sandwich? Okay. I can build a turkey sandwich. On our sign-up genius, you can build turkey sandwiches, sub-sandwiches. You can pour drinks if you can do that right there. You can serve drinks to those who are doing the building. Okay. So this is one of the things we can all be a part of. Why do we do this? To fill up your calendar and make it really busy and full of things to do? No, because servanthood becomes a lifestyle when we live out the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ changes how we see life and see what happens. The mind of Christ is we will live a life for the greatest good of others. We don't live our life for the greatest good of ourselves any longer. What is the greatest good that I can bless somebody with in the name of Jesus? Number three is redemption becomes the aim of us all. For all that we do and everything that we're about, redemption is the story. The hymn goes on and says that he humbled himself. If coming to earth was not enough, if living in Nazareth was not enough, if becoming a servant was not enough, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice how Paul even adds that. If you go back and listen to last week's message, it was unheard of for a Roman citizen to even watch a crucifixion. It was the most NC-17 movie you could watch. You wouldn't take your children to it. You would be on the outskirts of town. It was grueling. It was horrible. It was ungodly. It was inhumane. But yet Jesus even died and humbled himself, died at the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did it to redeem us make us whole again, complete again. And whenever I have the mind of Christ, I will live and exist and see to see people reconciled to God. I won't be able to sleep at night. I won't be able to let family members go without hearing the story of Christ. I won't be able to let my neighbors, my coworkers, my teammates, I won't be able to let my classmates go on living without having known that they've had the opportunity to be reconciled to God. You want, let me tell you something that's hard for me to do as a pastor. Every Christmas is hard and every Easter is hard. Because we've all, most of us, been in church long enough that we kind of know the Jesus story, okay? And to be able to retell it, to be able to re-energize it, it's a challenge. In fact, last week, I walked away from last week's message just scratching my head going, I, don't, I just don't feel like I connected, I feel like I missed some things. Even talked to my men's group on Monday morning about it. They were affirming, encouraging. But it was one of those things that I just had to wrestle with. And on Tuesday morning, I'm waking up and thank God, take us. Take us to the cross. And may we not see the stained glass Jesus, the felt board Jesus, the cartoon Jesus, 
the funny Jesus, the homeboy Jesus, but may we see the crucified Jesus. That was my prayer. And I can, something I do, and hope, hopefully you do, you've heard me say this before, that you give the first part of every day to God. You give the first dime out of every dollar to God. You give the first day out of every week to God. And you give the first thought or consideration in every decision to God. And that needs to be priority one of priority ones of your life, okay? Well, so in the start of my Tuesday morning, just like every other day of the week, is I take some time, I get my coffee, I turn on the lamp, I sit in my chair, the house is quiet, I get my Bible, I open it up, and I'm like, God, take us to the cross. Help us to experience the cross. So where am I going to go? So I went to Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 53 is the a telling prophetic message given again years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And there's this one verse. I thought I was going to read the entire two chapters and that was going to be my time with God that day, but it wasn't. I read one verse and I literally could not read any further. It sent me into tears. It stopped me in my tracks. May it do the same for you. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says it like this. This is what the cross was for Jesus. His appearance so disfigured that he did not look like a man. See, the Jesus that we see in cartoons or that we see in most of our renditions today has a little bit of blood and a little bit of blood and a little bit of blood. But what we need to see is a lacerated, mutilated, man of God who hung not on a smooth cross but a rough-edged cross where he would gasp for his air. The night before, he was bleeding to death. His, sim- his blood vessels in his head were hemorrhaging, and that was before he was even beaten once. This was a cruel, unusual death that he went through. And I think, again, his appearance was so disfigured, he didn't even look like a man. I'm sitting there thinking about that. I'm thinking, well, what does he look like? Some piece of meat hanging from a tree in a third world country where you don't even know what it is, but you're going you're to buy it and sell it in the market for pennies on the dollar? Is that what he looked like? You didn't even know he was a man? See, Jesus was born to die, and he died that we might live. Let the the suffering of Christ transform you that you will not live the same way again. That you will not live with, with, with people around you who don't know Christ, but you will live your life to see that they know the redemption that can happen through Christ. That they can find the freedom and the new life in Christ. We have to look at this world differently. He became obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. There's another verse I'm going to share in a few weeks, a part of this message, and so I'm not going to elaborate on it now, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's one of the most succinct gospel stories I could find in one verse. It's before Christ also suffered. Hang on that word, suffered, because it was just as I described it. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We're the unrighteous. He's the righteous. That This is the purpose clause, that he might bring us to God. What I say in the beginning, Jesus came to us because we could not go to him. He came to us so that he could bring us to God. Listen, that should revolutionize our life. That should change the way we live our life, the way we look at life, the way we think about life. And listen, what happens to us is then all of a sudden there's no limits, there's no borders, there's no, there's no conditions with God. Because God, if you're going to be in the form of God, but you're going to take on the form of a servant and you're going to enter into, into, into this empty, broken world and you're going to humble yourself and be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, you can see the digression in this hymn. And I don't have time to read the next verse because then it talks about the exaltation. You can read that for yourself. The beauty is it doesn't end at the cross. There's the resurrection and there's the exaltation that happens next. But here's what should happen is Jesus should redeem our lives to revolutionize our lives. Redeem our lives to revolutionize our lives.